All right, let's continue with Shakespeare's sonnets. Let's look at sonnet 73. That time of year thou mayst in me behold when yellow leaves, or none, or few, do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. In me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away death's second self that seals up all in rest. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie, as the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed by that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. Now this is one of the sonnets where the the rhyme scheme of quatrains and couplets matches the structure. So there are three variations on a theme and then a summation in the couplet. And the three quatrains are different models of aging. Uh, the first one is a time of year, so it's the passing of the seasons, it's autumn. We have the yellow leaves on the trees. And look at that line two, when yellow leaves, or none, or few, do hang upon those boughs. And notice the sequence there. It doesn't, it, it's not the, the logical sequence where yellow leaves are few or none. It's yellow leaves, or none, or few. Shakespeare kind of messes up, and it would, it would scan metrically. He could have easily done it that way. But what that does is it, makes the the line a bit more athletic for your your brain you're kind of taking it in and revising it as you go it's not hard to understand but it's also not as smooth and simple as the logical order would be and that kind of incidental uh, excitement and eventfulness is something that uh, uh, good poems do a lot and Shakespeare does quite a lot um, I notice that there's a, uh, an a, a metaphor within a metaphor. He's comparing himself to the autumn, and then he uh, gets wrapped up in the image of the, the trees in autumn losing their leaves, and then we have those boughs that are shaking against the cold, and then there's a metaphor for the, for that. They, those branches are bare, ruined choirs. So they're choirs because the sweet birds used to sing there and don't anymore. So this is his, his kind of declining age. It's like the, an, uh, an autumn day, you know, that seems to be moving into winter. In the next stanza, the next uh, quatrain, we get another model of the passing of time. And this is the passing not of the seasons, but of the day. So notice that the time is getting constricted. It's getting smaller. The twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west. Uh, which, and it's, so you see the sunset, and then black night comes, which is death's second self that seals up all in rest. Uh, that, that common metaphor of, of sleep as a image of death, death's second self that seals up all in rest. Uh, and then the final quatrain uh, gives 
another image of this kind of decline. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie. So it's this fire that is is slowly burning out. And the ashes are his youth. You've spent up your youth. Your life is burned away your youthful years and it, it's just kind of the embers are glowing on the ashes of youth um, as a deathbed whereon it must expire consumed by that which it was was nourished by so the images the fire gets smaller and smaller the ashes uh, uh, smother it so it's kind of just destroys itself and think about the progression of those images. As I've mentioned, we, we, the, the time shrinks. We go from the passing of seasons to the passing of the day to the last few moments of a, a dying fire. Um, also, think about the, the implied color scheme here. We have the, the yellow leaves of the, of the trees, the, the picture of the sunset, and then the image of the fire. They're all these kind of yellow, orange, golden colors that uh, uh, implicitly link those three sets of images together. And all of them share this movement from, from light to dark, from warm to cold, warmer to colder, uh, from life to death. Uh, so they're all kind of variations on a theme, each a distinct image, but all kind of interrelated in certain ways and, you know, painting a, a coherent picture. Then we get the, the couplet, This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. So the, the, the couplet tells us that, well, yes, you know that I'm in my declining years, that I don't have long to live. Well, this will make you love me even more, because you know we only have so much time together. Uh, Notice how different this is from the arguments that we got in the the first sonnets we looked at. There, in the first few sonnets we saw, the argument was that uh, you will conquer time by having children, and then you will conquer time by having being immortalized in uh, verse. But now it's not the beloved who is threatened by time, but the speaker, the poet himself. And the inev- inevitability of death makes their love stronger in the moment. There's no talk about uh, later immortality. Now, Sonnet 94 is yet again a kind of a new theme, though it does fit in with some of the things we've seen before. They that have power to hurt, and will do none, that do not do the thing they most do show, who, moving others, are themselves as stone, unmoved, cold, and to temptation slow. They rightly do inherit heaven's graces and husband nature's riches from expense. They are the lords and owners of their faces, others but stewards of their excellence. The summer's flower is, to the summer, sweet, though to itself it only live and die. But if that flower with base infection meet, the basest weed outbraves his dignity." For sweetest things turn sourest by their deeds. Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. 
Now, this is a sonnet where he is he's talking about a certain kind of of person and evaluating and uh, rendering a judgment on them. But as is very typical with Shakespeare, it's maddeningly difficult to pin down exactly what that judgment is. Just look at the the first quatrain and almost phrase by phrase how our evaluations of what he's talking about shift. They that have power to hurt, well, that sounds bad, people who would hurt you, and will do none. Oh, okay, they're good. They, They refrain from hurting you. That do not do the thing they most do show. So that's saying that what it they look like on the outside is not how their actions actually turn out. Well, that could be good or bad, depending on what you thought they would do and then what they actually do. It's very ambiguous. Who, moving others, oh, that sounds good, they, they move others, are themselves as stone. Oh, that's not good. They're stony, stone-hearted, unmoved, cold. Okay, this is all sounding bad. Stone, unmoved, cold, and to temptation, slow. Oh, wait, now we've got a good thing again. They don't yield to temptation. They rightly do inherit heaven's graces. Okay, that's sounding good. And husband nature's riches from expense. Now, wait, is that good or bad? If they're husbanding their uh, nature's riches, is that a wise and prudent thing to do, or is that a, a stingy and miserly thing to do? They are the lords and owners of their faces. Okay, now earlier it said they do not do the thing they most do show. And now they're the lords and owners of their faces. Again, is that good? Does that mean that there's no hypocrisy? Or is that bad? That means they've got such a control over their exterior that you can never tell what they're really thinking. And others, but stewards of their excellence. So these are the lords and owners. The others are just just, uh, hired hands. So that's the the first eight lines are talking about that. And when you start thinking about it, it's very hard to figure out what's the attitude here. It's a very ambivalent poem. Then he shifts in the sestet to a whole different kind of, of metaphor. The summer's flower... All right. So now these people, he's, he's using an analogy, they're like the summer's flower, and they're sweet to the summer even if it only lives and dies. But if it with base infection meet, the basest weed outbraves his dignity. So here again, we have positive and negative valuations. You have the sweet summer flower that just lives for itself, or is it? It's, notice it's an if, but if that flower with base infection meat. Uh, well, did it? Is that a warning? Is, is that a warning of something that could happen? Is it a diagnosis of something that has happened? The poem doesn't make it clear. And look at the, the couplet. For sweetest things turn sourest by their deeds. Here we get the, the sweet. Now that kind of addresses the octave. Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. That addresses the the sestet, the flower imagery. Um, And it suggests that, again, is that a warning 
don't let yourself be corrupted? Or is that a a condemnation? Oh, you were sweet once, but now you're sour. Um, this is very typically Shakespearean in the way it kind of combines different points of view on the same topic. Uh, and depending on how you read it, uh, it, it can go either way. And it's designed in such a way where it's hard to read it simply in any way. Again, very typically Shakespearean. Now in Sonnet 116, we get a very, one, it's one of the most famous sonnets, and it presents a, a picture of an ideal and idealized love. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out, even to the edge of doom. If this be error, and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. All right. So we start out, he's talking about, first of all, he defines this as the marriage of true minds. So this is not a, it's already a kind of a, a, a platonic ideal here. This is marriage of minds, not necessarily of bodies. And that word impediments would have had a particular resonance for the original uh, readers of this poem because, you know, the part in the uh, marriage ceremony where they say, if anyone knows any just cause why these two should not be joined together, let him speak now and f- or forever hold his peace. Uh, well, there in, in the that this marriage ceremony of Shakespeare's time, it, the phrasing was, if anyone knows of any impediment that these two should not be joined together. So that's a word from the marriage ceremony. Uh, Let me not, to the marriage of true minds, admit impediments. There's no impediment. There's no reason this marriage can't go forward. Love is not love, uh, which a nice kind of paradox, right? Love, wait, love is not love? Well, love is not true love, he must mean which alters where alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Now, notice the, the, the play on words there, alters and alteration, remover and remove. Um, notice, too, that alter is a word that would be associated with marriage, the marriage alter. Now, that's not at all the meaning it has here. But the sound is there, and that kind of fits in with the the pattern that's been established. And note, too, that this poem does something kind of amazing. It gets specific without ever actually being specific. Um, It's it's something that uh, some critics call constructive vagueness. Um, One example of this is, you know, the the movie um, Silence of the Lambs. Uh, Hannibal Lecter says that the the killer had killed a transient and 
done things with the skin. So he doesn't tell us what those things were, but the fact that he's vague about it makes it even creepier. Well, here we have alters when it alteration finds. So love is unchangeable. It never specifies what the alteration would be. Uh, it never says what the remover is. Uh, is, the, is it death? Is it uh, uh, somebody, affection for somebody else? We fill in the blanks with it. It, it, it becomes more expansive uh, and, and more powerful in a way because it's not specific. Uh, it doesn't bend. Uh, it doesn't alter. Because, oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. So the image here is of um, a lighthouse, uh, a mark, a sea mark, was a lighthouse, uh, and it looks on tempests and is never shaken. So even though the, the wind, again, this idea of absolutely fixed, unalterable, unbendable, unshaken, ever-fixed, um, it is the star to every wandering bark. And now we're continuing the idea, the, the sea metaphors, tempests, uh, uh, lighthouses, uh, the, the wandering bark of a ship. And this is like the, the North Star that you steer by, which is another kind of ever-fixed mark, whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. So you can, you can you know tell in the sky exactly where the height of the star of the north star is but its worth is unknown because it, it, it can't be valued it's invaluable uh, loves not time's fool all these things you know that the, the uh, time can't uh, alter it the winds of fortune uh, can't alter it and though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come all right, so time can destroy the rosy lips and cheeks, the, the outward beauty, uh, but not the, the real essence of love. Uh, and notice the with bending sickle echoes the, uh, or bends with the remover to remove. Another kind of two images, echoing images of death here. And the bending sickle, the scythe that death has that you know mows down people, uh, fits in with that remover image and compass here it just means within the the reach of his sickle but of course compass is another nautical metaphor so that fits in with all of the sea stuff the wandering bark the ever fixed mark the tempests um, love alters not again we're echoing again which alters when it alteration finds love alters not with his brief hours and weeks but bears it out, even to the edge of doom. And that suggests the idea of Judgment Day, the edge of doom. And uh, this very powerful couplet, if this be error, uh, error m means literally to go off course, which fits with the imagery in the poem, right? Of the, of the ships that are in the storms but stay on course, of the things that don't alter, uh, if this be error, and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. So the, the very fact that obviously he wrote this uh, it kind of suggests that this is un unquestionable uh, uh, truth. Um, but it's uh, it's 
this, I think you can see the kind of very intricate play of images, imagery and words that Shakespeare can weave into a poem like this. Uh, there are a lot of very sappy poems about uh, how love is unalterable. Um, Shakespeare takes that cliche and just by the the precision and the richness of his imagery and his language, he gives it a real life. Now, as I mentioned last time, uh, most of the sonnets, including Sonnet 116, are apparently addressed to the uh, the fair young man, uh, and that changes. Uh, sonnet 126 is the last one, and it's it's kind of a a partial sonnet. It's not really a sonnet. It's not 14 lines. Uh, but then in 127, we get a new object of desire. It says, in old age, black was not counted fair, or if it were, it bore not beauty's name. But now is black beauty's successive heir, and beauty slandered with a bastard shame. For since each hand has put on nature's power, faring the fowl with art's false borrowed face, sweet beauty hath no name, no holy bower, but is profaned, if not lives in disgrace. Therefore my mistress' brows are raven black, her eyes so suited, and, and they mourners seem at such who, not born fair, no beauty lack, slandering creation with a false esteem. Yet so they mourn, becoming of their woe, that every tongue says beauty should look so. So this is, in a way, it's kind of a myth of, of origin. It's a, back in the olden days, uh, the black was not counted fair. Now you have to remember that in the, in the Renaissance, um, the idealized beauty was uh, fair, fair skin, very pale skin, blonde hair, blue eyes. That was the perfect. Dark was unattractive. Fair was attractive. And so he's saying, you know, back in the olden days, nobody thought that the, the, the black eyes and black hair and dark complexion was beautiful. Um, but now... It is. It's become the heir of beauty. Uh, and beauty is slandered with a bastard shame. So they've switched places, black and fair. In fact, this whole poem is about how those concepts won't stay put. Um, for since each hand has put on nature's power, so now everybody has the power of nature through, through art through cosmetics. They can make themselves up to look fair. They can powder their face. They can wear a wig. Uh, they can do all of these things to look beauty. So sweet beauty hath no name, no holy bower, but is profaned. So uh, when everybody can go down to the, the store and buy the beauty makeup, beauty doesn't have any meaning anymore. It says, so my mistress eyebrows or raven black, and they, they're mourners. They're mourning for those who were not born fair and yet look beautiful. They, have, they lack no beauty because they're slandering creation with a false esteem. They're wearing makeup to look 
like the beautiful image of what a fair woman is supposed to look like. Yet so they mourn, becoming of their woe, that every tongue says beauty should look so. And yet, the the mourning of them is so moving, so powerful, that everybody's saying, that's what we should count as beautiful. Um, so this kind of paradoxical, again, th- those categories of fair and black don't stay put. They get crisscrossed, they get confused uh, they, for one another. And this introduces the, the mistress, uh, the usually called the dark mistress of the sonnets. And in traditional sonnet sequences that we've seen, whether you know Stella or Laura or Beatrice, the the woman that the the poet is in love with is conventionally and perfectly beautiful, but is too good for him. Now, what Shakespeare does is he takes that convention and turns it on its head, as you can see he's doing here. His mistress does not fit those stereotypes. She's bad. She's not good enough for him, and yet he still loves her. Uh, so it, it's almost a, a perfect inversion of the, the standard Petrarchan relationship of the, of the poet and the, of the poet lover and his mistress. And while most of the, the fair young man sonnets are about kind of an idealized love, a love that brings uh, thoughts of, of ideal perfection, the dark lady sonnets are much more psychologically complex. Uh, look at Sonnet 129. The expense of spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action. And till action, lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust, enjoyed no sooner but despised straight. Past reason hunted, and no sooner had, past reason hated as a swallowed bait on purpose laid to make the to make the taker mad, mad in pursuit and in possession so, had having and in quest to have extreme, a bliss in proof, and proved a very woe, before a joy proposed, behind a dream. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. So he's talking about uh, desire, obsession. This is the, uh, the the expense, expending your spirit, uh, your your life essence. Uh, the, the spirit was also a Renaissance term for for semen, uh, which works here as well. In a waste of shame. Um, and the, the pun on waste, uh, 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 the middle part of your body waste, uh, is there too, um, is lust in action. Well, lust in action is sex, right? So sex is expending your spirit, and it's a shameful waste. And until that action, until the, the consummation, Lust has all these horrible properties. It's murderous, it's perjured, it's bloody, it's savage, rude, cruel, all of these. And the lust in action is enjoyed 
no sooner, but despised straight. So as soon as you consummate the relationship, you feel guilty about it. Past reason hunted, and no sooner had, past reason hated. So you're, you, you have an irrational uh, hunting for it, and once you've got it, you're irrationally self-loathing about it. Because mad in pursuit and in possession so. Um, a bliss in proof and proved a very woe. So the, the, the moment, the, the proof, the moment of uh, sexual con, uh, consummation is a bliss, but after it's proved, after it's over, it, it turns from bliss to woe. Again, notice how often Shakespeare's mind turns to antitheses, bliss and woe. Um, before a joy proposed, behind a dream. And, and the, uh, the couplet says, everybody knows this, but nobody knows how to get around it. How, how do we shun the heaven that leads men to this hell? Uh, the, our, our desires draw us. Now, this is very, very different from the kind of idealized love we saw in Sonnet 116, right? The kind of perfect marriage of true minds that never alters. This is all about alteration, um, this again. This is why I say this is a darker, uh, more psychologically complicated uh, kind of love that happens in these sonnets. Now, Sonnet One Thirty is one of the most famous of Shakespeare's sonnets, and to understand the full force of it, you have to remember the convention that happened in sonnet sequence of the the blazon. Uh, a blazon was a catalog of the beauty of a mistress's features. You know, your eyes are like stars, your uh, skin is like ivory, your your cheeks are like roses, all, all of those kinds of things. And this poem is kind of an anti-blazon. He, he's taking those conventional love poetry images and comparing them to reality. My mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfume is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet... Well, I know that music has a far more pleasing sound. I grant, I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet, by heaven, I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. So the, the poem is starts out kind of really exposing uh, kind of deconstructing how absurd the the standard images of the Petrarchan blazon are. It says, it, look, my mistress's eyes don't look anything like the sun. You know, there's no coral red in her lips. Uh, there's no, her, her skin is not white as snow. Her hair is not like golden wire. It would be like black wires, I guess. Her cheeks aren't like roses. Her birth, breath isn't like perfume. Um, now, the word reeks 
which for us is a very powerfully negative word, was not in Shakespeare's time. It, it just meant a uh, it just meant a smell, not necessarily a bad smell. And he says her her voice and which I like. Still, it's not like music. It's not her voice is like music. No, no, she's she's not a goddess. She walks on the ground. And then he twists it at the end. And yet, by heaven, I think my love, as rare as any she, belied with false compare. So here we're seeing, but wait, just because she's not fit this perfect ideal of beauty doesn't mean that she's not as rare and special as any of those other Petrarchan mistresses. So here he is defending the the dark lady. Uh, No, she doesn't have the conventional beauty, uh, but then that conventional beauty is just a rhetorical trick. And I'd, I'd like to look here again at the way that Shakespeare weaves the images and words together. You'll notice that the the first quatrain is dominated with colors, red, white, black, red and white. Now, the the image of the roses are red and white. Uh, And notice that the next image is perfumes. Well, that very subtly fits in with roses. Roses are not only, you know, red and white have color, but they also have a smell. And so it kind of goes in for there. And the breath fits in with roses as well. And the very next thing, after the perfumes and the breath, is her speaking voice. Right? So that fits in too. There's kind of a, a nice smooth movement from the red and white of the roses to the idea of smell, the idea of smell, the idea of breathing, the idea of breathing, the idea of speaking. Uh, all of that kind of goes together. Or... In the last, uh, in the end of the poem, you know, I never saw a goddess go. Um, my mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet, by heaven, now heaven very nicely contrasts with ground, but it also fits with the idea of goddess. That's where goddesses live, in heaven. Um, so again, Shakespeare always finds ways to kind of weave the imagery together in much more subtle ways than most poets are able to manage. All right, let's look at Sonnet 138, which is another poem that shows the kind of complicated relationship that the the poet has with the, the dark lady. When my love swears that she is made of truth, I do believe her, though I know she lies, that she might think me some untutored youth, unlearned in the world's false subtleties. Thus, vainly thinking that she thinks me young, although she knows my days are past the best, simply I credit her false-speaking tongue. On both sides, thus, is simple truth suppressed. But wherefore says she not, she is unjust, and wherefore say not I that I am old? Oh, love's best habit is in seeming trust, and age in love loves not to have years told. Therefore I lie with her, and she with me, and in our faults, by lies, we flattered be. 
So this is the, the relationship between the two of them. My, my love swears that she is made of truth. Uh, that she's, and I believe her even though I know she's lying. Well, you, how can you do that? How can you believe somebody that you know is lying? Well, you're, you're pretending, right? Why does he do that? So that she will think of him as an untutored youth. That oh you know he believes her obvious lies, which shows that he's just young and green and innocent, and so vainly thinking that she thinks me young. So I know she doesn't think that I'm really young. She's just pretending to, so that I'll pretend to think that she's not lying to me all the time. Uh, she knows my days are past the best, uh, and I'm crediting her false speaking tongue and simple truth is suppressed by both of them. Then we get the, the question, why, wherefore, says she not, why doesn't she confess that she's unjust? Why don't I say that I'm really old, I'm not a young, innocent man? And love's best habit, uh, now habit both means a, a kind of a, uh, a way of doing things, and also uh, it can mean clothing. Uh, best habit is in seeming trust, and age in love loves not to have years told. You don't want, you know, when you're an old man in love, you don't want to be told that you're an old man in love. And therefore, I lie with her, and she with me. And there's a nice wordplay there on lie, right? Uh, they they lie together uh, in bed, and they lie to each other uh, the, the way they speak to each other. And in our faults, by lies, we flattered be. So this is, I mean, you can, uh, again, Shakespeare kind of sets up this relationship. It's either kind of awful or wonderful. Uh, there are you know, two people who are just in this uh, kind of completely dishonest relationship. Or there are two people who are playing the roles that the other one wants them to, to make the relationship work. Uh, again, as so often, Shakespeare sets it up so you can see the same thing in very different ways. Now, let's look at uh, Sonnet 144, which sketches out the relationship between the speaker, the fair young man, and the dark lady. Two loves I have of comfort and despair, which, like two spirits, do suggest me still. The better angel is a man, right fair. The worser spirit is a woman colored ill. To win me soon to hell, my female evil tempteth my better angel from my side, and would corrupt my saint to be a devil, wooing his purity with her foul pride. And whether that my angel be turned fiend, suspect I may, yet not directly tell. But being both from me, both to each friend, I guess one angel in another's hell. Yet this shall I ne'er know, but live in doubt, till my bad angel fire my good one out. So this is showing us a love triangle, all right? So two people he loved, two loves, one of comfort and one of despair. 
So a good one and a bad one, a comfortable one and a despairing one, one that gives him comfort, one that makes him despair. And they're like two spirits. The better angel, and this is the image, again, we saw this in Dr. Faustus, right? The good angel and the bad angel. Here they are. And who the better angel is the fair man, and the worser spirit, the, the devil, is the woman, the dark woman. And what happens in the in you know the conventional medieval and Renaissance uh, iconography? You have the, the the good angel and the bad angel who tempt the the, the man to uh, to do good or bad, but the the woman is breaking the rules. She is not just talking to him. She goes and talks to the good angel. She tempteth my better angel from my side and would corrupt my saint to be a devil. So she goes and has an affair with him. And notice, this is what he thinks is happening, but in, we see in the, in the sestet that he's not really sure. And whether that my angel be turned fiend, suspect I may, yet not directly tell. They're both, you know, they're both away from me, I'm friends to each of them. They're friends to each other. I guess one angel in another's hell. So he's just, is he just imagining this? Is this really happening? Or is it just his jealousy? And which one is he jealous of? The man or the woman? Uh, he says, so I, I will live in doubt until my bad angel, angel fire my good one out. Kind of expel the good angel, and also with a suggestion of venereal disease, uh, the fire my good one out uh, would have the kind of the uh, burning uh, sensations of a venereal disease. Um, so this is a very um, in a bad situation he's in uh, with the two loves that he has in the sonnet sequence. He's, he's afraid they've gotten together and they're having an affair behind his back, and he thinks that's what's happening, but he's not sure. Of course, not being sure makes it even worse. Uh, he's kind of consumed by, uh, by jealousy. And again, it's not at all clear which one he's more jealous of or for. Uh, he, he seems, again, that's typically with Shakespeare, very ambivalent about that. Now look at uh, Sonnet 147, which again gives us the very kind of dark complicated psychology of this uh, relationship. My love is as a fever, longing still for that which longer nurseth the disease, feeding on that which doth preserve the ill, the uncertain sickly appetite to please. So his love is like a, f a fever, that, but he... he, he doesn't want to get rid of it. He's he's longing for the things that make the disease worse, uh, feeding on the things that preserve this. It, it's it's uh, again as we saw earlier in the one of the sonnets in sonnet one twenty nine. He, he talked about how desire draws you on but makes you feel guilty later, and here is the same kind of idea. Uh, the, unsickly, the, um, the sickly appetite that it's trying to please. My reason 
the physician to my love, so he has reason in his soul to be his doctor, angry that his prescriptions are not kept, hath left me, and I desperate now approve desire is death, which physic did accept. So his, his reason has completely left him. His desire is fatal. It's killing him. Uh, past cure I am. Now reason is past care. Now the re- my reason has completely abandoned me. I'm, there's no hope of a cure. And frantic mad with ever more unrest. My thoughts and my discourse, as madmen's are, at random from the truth, vainly expressed, who is raving like a madman. For I have sworn thee fair, and thought thee bright, who art as black as hell, as dark as night. So the the recriminations here is how he was deceived. He thought that his love was fair and bright, but it's black, dark as night. Again, the wonderful antitheses set up there. Uh, so, like Sonnet 129, this is something that he thought would be good, but turns out to be terrible for him. Uh, now, it's interesting, with that couplet, again, is he talking about the woman or the man? Uh, he, he's never really said that the dark lady is fair or bright. He said that a lot about the young man. Um but oh, well, on the other hand, he has talked about how he loves the woman, and you know, the, my mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. Maybe not conventionally beautiful, but somebody that he loved. Uh, again, Shakespeare loves the ambivalence of that. All right, let's look at uh, Sonnet One Fifty Two. In loving thee, thou knowest I am forsworn. Uh, he's, that is, he's broken his vow. But thou art twice forsworn to me, love-swearing. In act thy bed-vow broke, and new faith torn in vowing new hate after new love-bearing. All right, so he's saying, I'm forsworn, because I'm, I'm cheating on somebody in having this affair with you, but you're doubly forsworn. You broke your bed-vow, that is, you were uh, promised to another. It's not clear whether that's a marriage or, or just that you had a previous relationship. And then a new faith torn in vowing new hate after new love bearing. So not only did you break with the break faith with the man you were with before, but now you vowed to hate him, even though you really love him. And says, but why of two oaths breach do I accuse thee when I break twenty? He says, how you know? It's really I'm e- I'm even worse than you. You're worse again. This seesaw. You're worse than me. No, I'm worse than you. Uh, quite a relationship. I am perjured most, for all my vows are oaths, but to misuse thee. So all of the vows he gave were just. It was just a line to get her to sleep with him. And all my honest faith in thee is lost. Now, see, I believed that you were something that you are not, and I've lost faith in you. For I have sworn deep oaths of thy deep kindness, 
oaths of thy love, thy truth, thy constancy, and to enlighten thee gave eyes to blindness. So I've said you were kind and loving and true and constant, and that was all a lie. And to, to enlighten thee, to make thee more, you know, make you more uh, light and fair and beautiful, I gave eyes to blindness. I, it's a wonderful image I made. I gave blindness sight, uh, or gave my sight blindness, uh, or made them swear against the thing they see. So, you know, again, who are you going to believe? You know, uh, me or your lion eyes? Uh, well, he's, he's, he saw what she was like and swore that she was something else. For I have sworn thee fair, more perjured I, to swear against the truth, so foul a lie. So here again, as in, as in Sonnet 147, we see this kind of recriminations and self-loathing, uh, and loathing for the, uh, the his beloved, and guilt and shame on his own part. It's a, uh, again, it's as different from the idealized relationship you get in most Petrarchan uh, sonnet sequences as you can imagine. He, I, you know, there's a, you know, there's a song, I Hate Myself for Loving You. That's exactly what these dark lady poems are about. Um, all right, well, we need to stop there, but uh, next time we're going to pick up Hamlet. So please read the first act of Hamlet. And a couple of things to focus on. Uh, think about how the first scene establishes the tone and mood of the play. How would the play be different if they just started with scene two? What, what do we, what, uh, not just in plot information, but what about tone and mood do we get by starting the way it does? Also, look at Hamlet's soliloquy in Act Two. We'll be tracing his soliloquies throughout the play, uh, and think about, uh, think about how they're different from Faustus's soliloquies. Uh, finally, you'll see that like Dr. Faustus, uh, Hamlet has a, a double plot. It has a main plot with Hamlet and his family, but then there's a subplot with Polonius and his two children, Laertes and Ophelia, and those these plots will be intermingled. But think about how the, the subplot with Polonius echoes or comments on the main plot with Hamlet and his family. Uh, so those will be some things that we'll be thinking about for Hamlet. You can uh, address questions to drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Thanks for your attention, and I will talk to you next time.